Welcome to Eucharist Podcast, where we're exploring what it looks like for a community of disciples to live all of life in reference to Christ. The following is a sermon given by Father Ryan Jones on October 16th, 2016. We had some technical difficulties with the recording of this sermon, so please excuse some of the static. The Gospel reading today was taken from the Gospel of Luke, and to be honest, it's a bit of a strange passage. It's a passage that comes on the heels of Jesus telling his disciples that they should anticipate that some very difficult times are coming down the pipeline in their direction. Life is going to be hard, he says. And in light of that, they should, quote, pray always and not lose heart. And then he goes on to tell them a story to illustrate this point about their need to persist in prayer. Now, Joshua just read it, so I won't read it again. But essentially, it's a story about a powerless widow. She's been oppressed, and she is desperately trying to get a corrupt, uncaring, and very powerful judge to give her what she needs, which is justice against her oppressor. Now, the judge, the corrupt judge, initially ignores the widow's plea. He really wants nothing to do with her. But she keeps badgering him. She keeps bothering him night and day. So he finally grants her what she wants, not because he cares, but just to get her off his back. And then Jesus draws a parallel to prayer. He says in verse 7, And will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. And yet... When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Now, what I find strange about this is how Jesus draws a parallel between God and this corrupt and uncompassionate judge who acts only in order to stop a person from badgering him. Now, we presume that the parallel is meant to provide contrast. But Jesus doesn't actually say that explicitly. It's just implied in the notion that God will act quickly rather than delay. But I feel like this raises an important question. It's kind of a meta question to the the parable. What is God actually like? How do we picture God? Each of us carries around inside of us a mental conception of God. Actually, it's far more than a mental conception. You could think of it as an emotional and psychological and a mental composite image that we have of God. Sometimes we're conscious of it. We can articulate a bit of it. But much of the time, our image of God is non-rational. It's emotional. It's a feeling in our gut. Or it's hidden somewhere in the unconscious realms of who we are. Now, perhaps I risk stating the obvious when I say that our, the image or conception that we have of God is enormously important for how we actually relate to God. I would go so far as to say that the single most important factor determining how you relate to God is the conception or image of God that you carry inside of yourself. It's the single most important thing. Now, there's all sorts of nuances uh, when it comes to talking about our various conception of who God is. But I'd like to suggest that whatever your image of God is, 
it comes back to two major factors. There's like kind of two big categories here. God's power and God's character. Your sense of God's power will determine how much you fear him, or said more positively, how much you pay attention to him. Your sense of God's character will determine how much you trust him. In the story of the widow and the corrupt judge, the widow knows who has power. But based on how corrupt and unwilling he is to help a person in distress, I'm pretty sure that the widow wouldn't trust him with much. She, cert she certainly wouldn't leave her puppy with him for the weekend. Power, yes. But trust, not so much. So I don't think it's accidental that Jesus ends this passage by asking, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Now, you might pray, he assumes, you might pray because you think God is powerful and that he might provide you what you need or what you want if you harass him or if you badger him enough. But will you trust him? That's a different question. The faith he's talking about when he says, will there be faith on earth, isn't a generic, like, do you believe God exists kind of faith? It's about vulnerable trust. Would you entrust your life to him? That's the kind of faith he's asking about. Would you entrust your life to him? Our Old Testament reading today develops this question in a slightly different way. The reading is a snapshot from the life of Jacob. Jacob is a guy who struggled his whole life with the question of whether he could really trust God. But in addition to the question of God's character, Jacob also seemed to have doubts about God's power. It had been 20 years since Jacob had fled for his life from his brother Esau. The last time Jacob saw Esau, he had threatened to kill him. That was after Jacob had deceived his father into giving, Esau, giving him Esau's blessing, which was shortly after he had tricked Esau into selling his birthright. After pulling these stunts, home was no longer a safe place. So Jacob had to run off to a foreign land with nothing but the clothes on his back. For 20 years, for 20 years, Jacob had avoided going home for fear of his brother's anger. His parents had died, but he hadn't been there to bury them. During his time in exile, Jacob gathered a household. Now, this is very early in the story uh, of, of the people of God, and so we shouldn't be surprised that, um, that, that Jacob has multiple wives and two concubines. He gathered a household. He amassed a great amount of wealth in the form of livestock. And once again, things had gotten awkward, though, with his, now his in-laws. It was clearly time he had to leave again. So with great trepidation, Jacob gathered up everything that he owned, his entire household, and he set off to the only place where he knew to, he knew to go, and that was back home to the land of Canaan. But as he went, the closer he got to home, the more that fear gripped his heart. He went into full panic mode when he heard that his brother was headed towards him with 400 armed men. This was the nightmare he'd been trying to avoid for 20 years. Now, if you know anything about Jacob, it's that Jacob was a wily and a crafty fellow. He was always scheming, always taking matters into his own hands. His name actually means deceiver. 
or literally heel grabber. And that's from when he was being born with his twin brother. He came out grabbing onto the heel of his brother. And that was the pattern of his life. Always grasping and taking things into his own hands. Always trying to bend reality to his own will. He knew how to manipulate, he knew how to deceive in order to get what he really wanted. In fact, he'd made a whole life out of that. But in this situation, with his brother approaching with 400 armed men, he really had very few options. Plus, his brother would easily see through any kind of schemes he might cook up. So he took his only good option, that of trying to soften Esau's anger with a series of extravagant gifts. So Genesis tells us that Jacob sent servants ahead of the caravan with waves of goats and camel and sheep and cows as gifts for Esau, each separated by a distance. So it was like an overwhelming amount of gifts coming. In addition to this, he took some safety precautions. He divided his household into two groups in hopes that if Esau happened to discover one group and killed them, perhaps he would think that was the whole household and the other group could escape. What we're seeing is Jacob is a desperate man. He's run out of options. He's a man that's having to face his deepest fears and anxieties. And I have to wonder if the deepest fear and the deepest anxiety that Jacob has is the question of whether he's actually on his own in the world. Is there anyone really looking out for him? But does he always have to grasp? Always have to bend reality to his own will? This is all the backstory to the passage that we read today, that Noble read for us. And actually, I want to encourage you, if you have a Bible, you might want to turn to Genesis chapter, 20, Genesis chapter 32 and verse 22. I'd like to look at this story. It's a mysterious story. It's a story that is woefully lacking in clarifying details. But it's a wonderful story. Chapter 32 and verse 22. The same night he, that is Jacob, got up and took his two wives, his two maids, and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok, which is a small creek. He took them and sent them across the stream and likewise everything that he had. And then this vivid phrase. Jacob was left alone. Here's Jacob. Totally alone in this great moment of existential angst. He's utterly vulnerable, totally exposed. Everything hangs in the balance. If he ever needed God, it's now. And then the author of Genesis goes on. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. Who is this man? We're not told. It doesn't seem that Jacob knows who this is. He's just fighting for his life with a man whose identity is a mystery shrouded in the darkness of night. And the metaphorical and symbolic meaning of this could not be richer, right? The wrestling match continues for hours, each man holding his own, fighting apparently as equals, neither getting the best of the other. Verse 25, when the man saw that he could not prevail, that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Now, from my very limited research on the subject of hip dislocation, uh, you could uh, talk to Dr. Christine later about this, and she might be able to tell me um, better. It seems that, that hip dislocation is a pretty unusual thing for a wrestling match. Um, apparently, it takes an enormous amount of force to push a normal person's hip out of its socket. In fact, hip dislocation is usually something that only happens in situations 
where someone falls from a tall ladder or where there's been a, a, a pretty serious car accident, it takes traumatic force to push a hip out of its socket. Now, when you combine this with a sense in the Hebrew, um, the word used to describe what the mystery wrestler does, he, it's not a special wrestling move that he's doing. You see that this is just a display of his extraordinary power. The Hebrew suggests that the mystery wrestler just touches Jacob's hip and dislocates it. In other words, the clear superiority in power of the mystery wrestler is finally revealed. Up until now, it's appeared to be a pretty even match. It's only now that with his hip out of joint that Jacob has any clue as to who it is that he's wrestling with. This isn't just some man. But even at this moment, even with his hip out of joint, even with an awareness that he is wrestling with someone with superhuman powerful, superhumanly powerful, uh, uh, he does not let go. He holds on. Verse 26. Then he said, let me go, for the day is breaking. And Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Now, there's a kind of parallel here in the persistence uh, with the persistence of the widow in Jesus' story. Jacob will get a blessing one way or another. Now, as I alluded to earlier, all of his life, Jacob was, had been trying to, get, to manipulate blessings out of people. Even if he had to steal and cheat to get them. He's been deceiving and tricking people his whole life. But what is just beginning to dawn on him is that God wants to bless him. It's just that his entire identity has been so focused on getting it for himself on his own terms that he can't receive a blessing. By asking for the blessing, Jacob has, in a sense, submitted himself to being in the weaker position. He's not trying to deceive or trick. He recognizes that the mystery wrestler is clearly, without a doubt, the superior in power. Clearly, this person could have destroyed him if he wanted to. He was powerful enough that with a simple touch, he put his hip out of joint. But it was obvious to Jacob that this man didn't want to destroy him. He had actually initiated the wrestling match with Jacob. Jacob had operated his whole life as though he could outwit God. And now, that story was working itself out symbolically in the experience of a wrestling match with God. God let him wrestle with him like an equal, struggling in the darkness, but a new day was about to dawn in, the relation, in his relationship with God. And with a simple touch, God demonstrated his power. This was no equal fight. This wasn't a fight at all. This was God meeting Jacob in order to reveal his power and his goodness. God wanted to bless him. What happens next is interesting. God, in the form of the wrestler, asks Jacob his name. This is a critical moment, actually, in the story. We might easily miss its significance. To give your name to someone is, is a form of submission. Do you remember what Jesus did when he was going to cast out that demon and that one man? He asked the demon, what is your name? Remember? This is common amongst uh, exorcists who are trying to cast out demons. They ask the name. They have power over it. Then. So Jacob tells him his name. He submits himself to him. But perhaps, just as importantly, when he gives his name, he's simultaneously making a confession of his identity. 
My name is Jacob. My name is Deceiver. I admit it. I'm a trickster and a schemer. I'm an untrusting person who takes matters into my own hands. That's who I am. I'm Jacob. He takes his mask off. He tells the truth about himself. Verse 28, then the man said, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, which means someone who strives with God, someone who wrestles. For you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. No longer are you to be deceiver and trickster. You are Israel. You are wrestler. And I love how the image of how the story ends. Jacob realizes that he's been wrestling with God. And the sun is rising, and he, he passes this place that he names Penuel, which means face-to-face uh, -face with God. And he's limping because of his hip. He's limping. Jacob is the wrestler who limps. His encounter with God marks him. Now, we might think that being physically disabled on the eve of the scariest day of your life is not a good thing. But something more important has happened. Jacob's image of God has been transformed. Is God powerful? Jacob knows, he now knows for sure that God is intensely powerful, and yet he is willing to meet him on his terms. Is God good? Is he trustworthy? He now knows that God desires to bless him. And of course, this isn't just one man's story. It's the, background, it's the background story for the identity of God's people. Israel becomes the people who wrestle with God. Israel are the people who wrestle with God. And it isn't until many generations later that another man comes shrouded in mystery to wrestle with Israel in order to bless them. And his identity is also unclear until the dawn of a certain day when he is seen for who he actually is by a group of women. And similar to Jacob, our encounter with this man's power will mark us. We'll limp if we encounter him. But we'll limp in the confidence that God is powerful and that he is unspeakably good and that he wants to bless us. I want to close by inviting you, wherever you are in your journey with God, to wrestle with him. Don't run away. Don't give up. Keep on wrestling. God wants to transform your conception of him. He wants to bless you. He wants to show you that he is powerful and that he is trustworthy. And in the end, God hopes that we won't merely wrestle with him, but that we will rest in him. But for most of us, we can only truly do that if we first wrestle with him. Where in your life right now are you wrestling? Where are you sensing that you want to withdraw? I commend to you, Jacob. Hold on. Cling on. Ask for that blessing. Let your conception of God be transformed. He wants to meet you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
Amen. Thank you for listening to the Eucharist Church Podcast. You can visit us online at eucharistsf.org. And feel free to come join us for worship. We meet Sunday morning at 10 a.m. at 1504 Bryant Street, San Francisco, California.